Gresham College presents Tudor Health Reform, a panel discussion with Professor Carol Rawcliffe, Professor Alan Chapman and Professor William Ayliff, chaired by Professor Tim Connell. Uh, Mr Chairman, I'd like to thank Professor Ayliff for another characteristically, characteristically interesting and uh, entertaining talk. Um, I imagine that Sir Keith Joseph, if you put him in layers of administrators years ago, must be really turning over in his grave many, many times. The question I'd like to ask is that you mentioned uh, the place of diet in cutting down uh, mortality. Uh, the question that went through my mind, uh, did the, uh, how did they discover which foods would be uh, beneficial? I mean, presumably they didn't have anything that was the equivalent, or maybe they did. It's something the equivalent to the theory of the design of experiments. and. Uh, well, it's funny you should say that, and Alan is one. Alan is one of the experts on this. It was one of the first controlled clinical trials ever yes, done, which was to identify that vitamin C, which they didn't call vitamin C, which was present in fresh um, vegetables, not necessarily limes until later. That was a myth, um, which of course the Americans sometimes do get myths of this country slightly wrong. We called limeys incorrectly. Um, Alan, I'll pass on to you. Well, uh, it was James Lind uh, who does this uh, in HMS Salisbury uh, in 1748 in the battlefield in the Western Approaches. And what he did in his trial was to take a number of patients with, with scurvy and pair them, the idea of having a modern clinical control. And he gave them a variety of things. Some he gave wine, some he gave vinegar, some he gave lemon juice, some he gave various things. And he noticed that the ones to whom he gave lemon juice shot up and soon were nursing the others. And the ones he was not giving it to went down. And he then wrote a paper for the Royal Society. He became a fellow of the Royal Society himself and became later physician to Haslar Hospital, which is a senior hospital for the Royal Navy. But that's the first clinical trial. Chris, I was asked that question in Oxford about a month ago as well. When were the first clinical trials? and at sea in the English Channel on HMS Salisbury, 1748. And James Lind was a physician. Did that knowledge beyond the hospitals into society generally, and you had the beginnings of a kind of public, uh, um, what they call public health? Uh, well, that really is Victorian. Uh, you saw another good case, of course, is Lister, uh, which is with free spray, 1865-67, when he finds that when he takes carbonic acid, and washes his hands, washes instruments, doesn't spray it, and has a regime at the table which tries to remove the, uh, whatever was thought to be the infectious material, a la Pasteur by that time, then his mortality rate from, I think it was 17 cases in Glasgow Royal Infirmary fell from 45% to 15. Although, of course, too, as you said, of course, too, William, uh, we have to bear in mind there was already a lot of aseptic surgery as well. For instance, I mentioned, of course, um, the idea of Woodruff and his work on, on, on uh, naval medicine in the 1617. He later mentions, when he's a surgeon at Barnes, and this is 1639, that out of 100 amputations, he'd only had 20 mortalities. Any Victorian surgeon would have been proud of that. And there are two other examples in the ophthalmology field. The first one was Davielle, who, instead of doing the traditional um, couching, um, performs the first extractions, uh, deliberately attempted extractions. 
and publishes the first audit. And remember, um, audit of cataract surgery was first introduced probably only 15 years ago in the NHS. So yet again, we have examples of these Renaissance and post-medieval hospitals doing an excellent job. Also in India, in the 1880s, what became known as the Indian operation. Uh, they had a cataract season. They could operate for three months only because of the infection rate, because they didn't have good antibiotics and so on, and even those are still considered to be useless. Um, they would operate on hundreds each of these cataracts, and they had a good audit, and their results were so good that American surgeons came over to learn the Indian operation done by these colonial surgeons in military uniform in these camps all the way across the northern provinces of India. Sorry, um, we don't have much time for questions. Could you just have one question per person, please? The lady in the front, perhaps, Sophie? To take the, um, the issues back to the 16th century and possibly other times of major upheaval. To take us back to the 16th century, of, after the dissolution of the monasteries and basically the land grab that it was about, um, did the population of London, London and other major cities suffer because suddenly such hospitals as they had collapsed? Yes, there was, there was terrible. There, was, there, were, there were a lot of petitions and complaints. And these were made nationwide. And there was a, a great deal of literature written by people who were actually what you would call hot Protestants, who recognized that although they disliked what the Catholic Church had been doing, not enough was being done for the sick poor. And there, there are a raft of, there's a raft of propaganda material by people like Thomas Starkey, who were complaining that although the monasteries had been shut, there's still hordes of poor people. And I think what we have to remember is many of these are syphilitic. This is a big epidemic. And people are actually, you know, they say people are rotting, lying rotting in doorways and there's nowhere to take them. This is one of the reasons that Barts is re refounded because it serves as a hospital for the cure of, of syphilitics. I'm sure you'd like to add to that. Well, we'll also several of the hospitals, such as in Knightsbridge, the used to be a Lazar a leper hospital, become lock hospitals. I think the word lock is quite. I think it comes from the Norman French meaning rags, doesn't yeah. it? Which yeah. they used to yeah. dress them into, and uh, they were transformed into treating venereal diseases. The epidemic of venereal disease seems to occur around about the time of Charles's invasion of um, Italy, and um, smallpox by then was a less deadly disease due to the population becoming used to it and perhaps smallpox itself perhaps being a bit less virulent. The great pox, which would kill you, which smallpox didn't, smallpox didn't kill all of you, it poxed you and made you look very ugly, but it didn't necessarily kill you, whereas the great pox was, and it was in very high mortality. So there's something new about the new syphilis that had come over from the new, possibly from the new world, or possibly um, reintroduced at a time of war. And again, we're in another epidemic of syphilis, which has just recently started again. And I'm seeing cases that I only recognize what they were because I have read the um, 1800s and early 1800s um, pictures in India. And when I worked in Madras, I archived their museum there where there are some glass models made of eyes with different diseases that were shipped over from London. And they're, they're, is, they're beautifully made and they're anatomically 
I mean, and one of them was of syphilis, which enabled me to recognize four cases of syphilis, which I otherwise would never have seen, because syphilis did not exist when I was a young doctor, except as congenital syphilis in 80-year-old women in deep-sea ports such as Bristol and Liverpool, where it was the commonest corneal problem in these elderly women undergoing cataract surgery because of the congenital syphilis epidemic after the First World War. So um, syphilis is, is an extraordinary disease, and it's a very difficult disease to deal with, um, although once you can make the diagnosis early on, it is still eminently treatable with antibiotics, and it's still sensitive to antibiotics, which is one blessing. Mm. Um, next question. I could add to that as well briefly. Quite uh, perhaps the population, although the houses closed, many of the religious houses closed, what it did do is stimulate what was called a literature for poor men's physic. Andrew Board, who had been one of the physicians to Henry VIII, wrote a popular English digest about how to cure common diseases. And right through the Elizabethan period, up to the English Civil War, there's a literature constantly coming up about poor man's physic. And you get to the back of almanacs, cheap little booklets, and perhaps the last great expression of this is John Wesley's Primitive Physic, 1737. The most influential of the lot, because it carried with the Methodist women. But the idea of home doctrine, and that, of course, catches quite on as learned physicians write on medicine for poor men in English. And there's quite a, quite a body of that. Mm-hmm. Next question. Sophie, can we have to that side? Thank you. What do I have to Just speak. Oh, OK. Thank you. Just a um, quick question. You said that the... Um, the care that people got in medieval times was very good. Can I just ask who funded it? Were they expected to pay towards this? Or Sorry if I missed it, if you really said no, it. These people, people almost invariably, initially who go into hospitals, are poor. But what, and the care is funded by patrons who are buying their way into heaven. This idea that arms, you're, if you're rich, you have a particular duty to care for the poor. And therefore, setting up a hospital is the ideal thing to do. But what happens, and this is very interesting, is you do get a shift, um, particularly after the Black Death, to people paying for beds. So more and more hospitals slightly lose their way, and they begin to take paying patients. And I was interested, William, that you mentioned the 1414 Act of Parliament, and it actually says people are now buying their way into hospitals. So there is, a, there is a privatization, if you like, going on. But in theory, these places are for the poor who are supported by the rich. That's so the theory. They wouldn't have been refused then if they couldn't pay? No. No. Except, you know, in some cases, these complaints say that people are preferred if they can pay. This is one of the complaints, because they shouldn't be doing that. Thank you. Another question. Does uh, yes, you point. Um, in terms of finding one's way to heaven and about endowments, at New College Oxford and its school foundation, uh, Winchester College, still pray every day for the founder, William of Wickham. And so he was, when he founded the two institutions, 1387 and 1391, so he's really had a bonus helping of prayers. 
purgatory by now. What, a week of Easter? Well, in my grammar school, we pray to John of Gaunt, who was probably one of the most evil men of his day. And um, his palace, when it was destroyed, and it was totally destroyed and ground to dust, then they described the jewels they took out of it. They ground them to dust to throw them in the Thames. They weren't interested in robbing him. They wanted to make a point. And in fact, one poor peasant did steal a candlestick and he was lynched by his fellow peasants outside. This was not a point of robbery. This was a point to say to the rich, we've had enough, we won't put yes. up with you anymore. That site remained vacant for a long time until the Savoy Hospital was built on it. And now, a rather excellent bar with um, martinis. Um, where you, it's the one place in England you drive on the other side of the road to accommodate American actresses, apparently, they've had too many martinis. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's all about accommodating American actresses, I'm sure. Yes, sir. Um, surgical instruments, um, the Romans used to use uh, copper uh, because they're antibiotic. Um, did, the, uh, did they use uh, copper in uh, medieval times, or what did they use? Actually, um, the use of um, metal in medicine was, was adapted, or, or chemicals in medicine was adapted very early because it was introduced by the Arabs. And as Arab texts begin to filter into the, um, into the West, they start being absorbed into, into medicine from all the late 12th, 13th century. But they don't have a concept of antisepsis. They don't, they don't as, you know, as you said, they're, they're not, they, they don't recognize the importance of sterilization or keeping things um, free of germs because they don't know about germs. It's this idea of keeping away the um, miasmatic air. But I would just like to add that medieval surgical manuals, of which there are a great many, stress that you must have clean hands and clean nails. And you should keep your instruments free of dirt and rust. But the reason for that is to avoid them getting smelly. So, in a way, they were doing the right thing for the wrong reason, which is rather And again, just on that, um, one of the more common operations that was performed, and probably the earliest successful operation that's still performed to this day, was cataract surgery. The purpose of doing that was to drive a sharp instrument into the eye to release a collection of fluid that was in front of the organ of sight, which was believed to be the, the lens, not the retina. So from something that is so completely flawed as that, you had one of the most successful operations that ever was. So it doesn't really matter what your thought is, whether it's right or wrong, and I alluded at the end, we could well be wrong. We just don't know whether we're wrong, because there's unknown unknowns, as Brunsfeld was saying, which are very difficult for us to... I mean, it may turn out there's not germs at all. It could be something the germs themselves are carrying, for all I know. Um, but we assume it's the germs. Same with it. It doesn't matter what the theory is. Who said, who said that... Um, in theory and in th theory and practice, you John Connell was it? In, in, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. Yes. <laughs> and that is the point of medieval surgery: yeah. is that yeah. it worked. Yeah. And yeah. so it doesn't really matter what your theory is. Metal instruments. We're going to have a lecture on those from the Arab metal instruments with. Um, Nicholas Serikoff, I think coming fairly soon, within about nine months here, and he's the curator of the medieval manuscripts at The Welcome, and knows a lot. He gave me a book of medieval surgical instruments, which um, he's compiled. So hopefully come to that, and he'll explain to you of the different metals. Yes.
Pardon? Some were of copper. Some were, some were silver, some were steel, some were gold. The problem with gold and silver is it's too soft to be of any use to penetrate any tissue of the human body with any effectiveness. The eye is rather tough, uh, and in fact it's the most anhydrous tissue in the body by a long, long way. Your fingernails are 20% more water than your eyeball. And so you need a very strong instrument to get into that. Surgical steel was an excellent one. We have time for one last question. Uh, in terms of medieval surgical manuals, uh, Guido de Choliac, who was a French, mid-14th century French surgeon, in 1460, he writes a work called De Chirurgia Magna, The Great Surgery. And that is an astonishingly modern-sounding book to read. Again, hygiene, instrumentation, warm relation with the patient, high state of humanity, that comes through. And again, rubbishing the idea of the barbarism of medieval surgery. And the sophistication that Guido, or Guy, actually describes is quite remarkable. And that is 1360. In fact, Guido Choliac was a fascinating man. He was physician to the folks at Avignon. He caught bubonic plague. 1348 survived it, wrote a treatise on the plague as doctor and patient, and then later wrote this great treatise on surgery. John of Bohemia consults him when yes, he's blind, he after being blinded by bilateral yeah. cataract surgery, and he's recommended a diet. Yes. Um, it was the only thing that could be done for him. So a humane thing to do, rather than reoperating on eyes for which there was no hope. Yeah. Unfortunately, he dies at the Battle of Cressy, and that's why the... Um, um, Prince of Wales has the feathers and Ichdeen, which were originally um, the Bohemian uh, motto, and they're now ours because they picked them up on the battlefield. He was found dead with all his 14 companions tied to him the next morning. Next question. Well, with the Reformation and the change of religion, uh, do you think there was a different, a different approach under Protestantism to, towards medicine than uh, under Catholicism? That's a fascinating question because it used to be believed that medical advances were really only made in Protestant countries because we'd thrown off, you know, the shackles of restraint and, and, and if you like, the hierarchy that, that prevented freedom of thought. Um, I'm not convinced by that because if you look at some of the great surgical advances of the 16th century were made in France by Ambroise Paré, who was a Catholic um, so I don't think it's as pat as that. But I do think that removing hospitals from the control of the church, as they were, did make it possible to introduce a greater amount of surgery because these are no longer operating as churches with altars. And, of course, you can't spill blood where there's an altar because it's sacrilege. So just in that basic respect, yes, it would have made a difference. But I think we've got to be very careful about these pat generalizations, which yeah. I was brought up with when I was a student. I don't so know what... You furthermore, it's forbidden for a priest to actually shed, shed blood either, which made it awkward for them to be surgeons. I entirely agree. Uh, this idea that somehow the church held back science is pure, pure enlightenment mythology, so-called I call it endarkenment mythology. <laughs> um, in reality, the Guido de Choliac, these humane institutions, bearing in mind, of course, the number of things you'd have tried surgery for in those days would have been limited anyway. Mm. And most diseases, you know, the idea of you going into a hospital, I'm going to have my legs sawn off, I'm going to have my eye poked out, I'm going to have my blood approved. Ah, run away if you possibly can. You don't go in with the hope 
of almost certain cure like today. Surgery was a thing of terror. It was literally a forlorn hope. You did it at the end. So it's not that the church holds surgery back. Patients don't want it if they can possibly avoid it. Mm. Yes. Furthermore, the proof of the circulation of the blood, of course, was Italian, and that's yeah. where they found um, the corpuscles yeah. going through. Um, the seat of vision, again, was yes. Italian, with a drunken medical student yeah. who discovered the stripe of Gennari. Yeah. Um, there are so many advances that we overlook in our Anglo-American, yes. Anglo-centric yes. view yes. of history. I mean, it's 1066 yes. and all that all over again, isn't it? I think it's worth pointing out that the first authorised dissections were instructed to be done by the papacy. Um, and the, the, the idea, I think this is, this is quite true that some of the big advances in medicine in the 14th century uh, took place in the papal court because yes. there were a series of popes who were particularly fascinated in prolonging life uh, and this idea of the regimen of, of, of finding a way of living that would make you live longer. And we don't necessarily associate these ideas with the papacy. They also uh, you know, accepted that autopsies should be done in certain cases. And I think we, we tend, possibly because of that, that Protestant background we have, yeah. to sort of make a distinction between mm. the enlightened Protestant North and the less enlightened Catholic South. And, and also, you can also get the wrong answer from the right observation, which is the other side of this coin. So if you do um, examine someone immediately after death, you're going to find the arteries are empty, full of air, yeah. because the last beat of the heart pumps them and the wave empties them, and you find all the blood is then in the veins. So the logical conclusion is, is the arteries must be carrying the air and the veins must be carrying the blood. Yes. And this is perfectly logical, and it's a just an incorrect um, conclusion from perfectly reasonable and correct observations. Uh, one, one paradox which came there, and I'm trying to agree with there with him, they notice in battle injury, if let's say a man and another hand chopped off, why did the artery spurt blood? Mm. So why did you do that in life? But it was empty in death. But the other point was, again, taking up the, uh, the point about the, uh, the faithful court, um, the final proof of Harvey's theory of the circulation came from Bologna. Marcello Malfini, using the new microscope, 1661, dissects out the lung of a living frog, and under perhaps about 100 magnification, sees the blood moving from the arteries to the veins in the alveoli of a frog. And that was, of course, the parallel to the human. But bearing in mind that was done by a devout Roman Catholic lay physician in the papal university, supposedly just after Galileo, which I think is another nonsense, the whole story of Galileo as well, which needs fundamental revision. But the idea that somehow, if you're an Italian or a Catholic, you just and run away, that is pure uh, I wouldn't call it prophecy. I call it enlightenment bunkum. <laughs> For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.